I'm Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Cape Up. Pandemics spread and exploit the fissures of society. And the United States has many, many wounds, open wounds, from structural racism and the criminalization of poverty and the refusal to address poverty. And those realities make us and made us even more susceptible to the spread of this pandemic. That's Reverend William Barber, president of Repairers of the Breach and the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. For years, Barber has preached about how racism, poverty, voter suppression, the lack of access to health care are all linked. Now comes the coronavirus that has forced us to face these fissures in American society. And Barber says the American people are eager to fight back. But there are supporters of the president who are fighting back against their state's stay-at-home orders. Demonstrations Barber believes are misguided. What we need is not guns. We need grace towards each other. We don't need the flags waving. We need free testing and free health care. Hear more from Reverend William Barber right now. Reverend William Barber, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you always, Brother brother Capehart, and, and thank you for all the work that you do, uh, uh, keeping the truth out there in, in a very objective way. Well, I am I'm trying my best, and I wanted to talk to you in this global emergency that we're in, and especially here in the United States, the coronavirus pandemic, as we've been reading for the last couple of weeks now, that the African-American community is bearing the brunt of this uh, of this pandemic. And I wanted to talk to you because the issues that this is bringing up factors into what you've been talking about specifically over the last couple of years. So how about you talk about at the outset um, from your perspective what the coronavirus pandemic in the United States is bringing up that we should be paying more attention to? Well, you know, sadly, um, there are times that you um, wish you were not right, and you wish a movement that you um, participate in was not right, and it's because because when you're right, it really exposes a lot of people that are facing a lot of harm. And we've been saying uh, through repairs of the breach and in the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, that America choosing not to address the reality of 140 million people living in poverty and low wealth in this country prior to this pandemic uh, 43% of this nation, uh, 61% of all African Americans living in poverty and low income, which is about 26 million people, uh, somewhere between 27, 30% of white Americans, which is, uh, 66 million people, uh, 62 million people living without, uh, a living wage, uh, 30 million people without health care, nearly 80 million people who who, did, who were underinsured, 
700 people dying a day, Jonathan, from poverty and low income. These were the stats prior to this pandemic. And then the pandemic hits and all of the major researchers will tell you, I've been in conversation with um, Dr. Bassett from Harvard, who's a public health uh, uh, epidemiologist, in conversation with Dr. Ford from UCLA, who's a public health uh, epidemiologist, researcher, my own daughter, who's a PhD at Drexel, graduate from Harvard, who's a public health specialist, and they all shout one thing with, with, with in the same way. Pandemics spread and exploit the fissures of society. And the United States has many, many wounds, open wounds, from structural racism and the criminalization of poverty and the refusal to address poverty. And those realities make us and made us even more susceptible to the spread of this pandemic, the life of this pandemic, and the depth of this pandemic. Uh, and if you do, and because we were already vulnerable, it's not so much that the germ is so powerful. When you add the germ to the ineptitude and inadequate response of the administration, to the open wounds and fissures caused by poverty, systemic racism, ecological devastation, and a country that puts 53 cents of every discretionary dollar into the war economy and only 15 cents of every discretionary dollar into dealing with things like education, infrastructure, healthcare, and so forth and so on. It produced an environment that made us end up where we are right now. And if we don't address these realities right now, not in the future, if we don't address them right now, this pandemic will continue to exploit these fissures in our society. Reverend Barber, to that point, one of the things we've been watching of late are protests against the stay-at-home orders instituted by governors in various states around the country, where you have a lot of people, particularly supporters of the president, who are out there protesting at state capitals, not social distancing, not wearing masks, um, all congregating together, demanding that their states be opened up. And I'm wondering, given what we're talking about, is the reason why they're doing that is because they do not, those people protesting don't feel that it has hit them. And I bring that up because, again, we've been talking about the fact that the coronavirus has been um, very hard on the African-American community. We saw stats out of Chicago where 70% of the deaths um, are, were African-Americans and African-Americans only make up 30% of the Chicago population. Or in, in the South, in Louisiana, the state of Louisiana, 70% of the deaths were African-Americans and they also only make up about 20-something, 30-something percent of the population, is it that folks are protesting, the president's supporters are protesting because they don't see it as, quote-unquote, their problem? Well, yeah, 70% of the people in Mississippi uh, who died from this uh, African-American and the highest per capita um, rate of coronavirus infection and death is in a place called uh, St. 
John Parrish in Louisiana, uh, which is also in Cancer Alley. And they also had the highest rate of deaths prior to uh, the hitting of the pandemic. You know, John, I don't know if it's, if it's that simple. I think that's a factor in it. Uh, I think that's a factor. Uh, I think that um, uh, because, as I know, said to you, we have 61% of black people that are poor and low wealth, that, but that's 26 million people. But we also have uh, uh, 66 million poor and low-income white people. And so uh, this, this, this fissure of poverty is deep uh, across this country. I'm in conversation with people who are in Appalachia, coal miners who had who had black lung, and they say when this thing hits here, it's going to wipe us out. I don't know what to make of some of these um, uh, uh, protesters, particularly when I see them in Michigan, who are so uh, captured by the meanness and the madness of our current president that they would move in the street and protest something that is to protect them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I think that, that part of it is fear. You know, when people are afraid, they do some strange, strange things. You heard the president talk about cabin fever, but when you are afraid and then you have, you put your hopes in a, in a authoritarian person, you know, when you put your hopes in someone who is always saying it's somebody else's problem, who's lying to you, and you get caught up in those lies, you can do some strange things. I mean, we've seen that down through history. I mean, through history. Uh, and it's always a danger, you know, when you combine something like um, uh, 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 a pandemic, and then you combine economic downturn. Remember, in the in the in the twenties, you had the swine flu, you had uh, uh, which was a pandemic, and then you had the Great Depression. Now, in America, we ended up getting Roosevelt, but in Europe, they got Mussolini and Hitler. You can't ever forget that. But I do think the fact that 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 there are some people who who have who have thought, you know, the issue of poverty is not our issue. Uh, this they tried to blame it on the Chinese, getting it from you know the president. They hear this about the African American community. The Surgeon General did not help at all when he suggested that black folk needed to be needed to stop drinking, stop doing uh, tobacco and drugs as their protection for COVID rather than dealing with the structural issues. And we've not had the data on poverty. I think we're, we're making a terrible mistake of, of not saying this is how it's hitting black people, this is how it's hitting uh, uh, Latino people, but this is also how it's hitting poor people. One of the things we see when we look at that mapping is even in the African-American community, it's not just hitting African-Americans, it's hitting African-American poor communities, mm -hmm. poor communities, African-Americans who are without health care, African-Americans who are frontline workers who don't have sick leave, who don't have living wages, African-Americans who are, are underinsured. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know I'm a little long on this answer, but I was watching the, the day, and, and I'm not laughing funny, I'm laughing hurting, uh, sad, people out with no mask on with guns and flags and and protests. Now, one thing we know about this virus, you can't shoot it. You, there's not a missile you can fire that can blow it up. If that was the case, our military could have dealt with. 
So you you going out with a gun and a flag. What we need is not guns. We need grace towards each other. We need we don't need the flags waving. We need free testing and free health care. And we don't need protests in the street. We need people to protect themselves and others by staying in place and giving the scientists and the doctors the time to work this out. So you're actually in the street with things that are not going to help you at all. You know, you have been preaching, literally preaching, for at least the last the last two or three years. One that there's there's not enough mention of the word poverty in our political discourse. But more to the point, you've been traveling around the country trying to um, show people how if you are interested, if you care about poverty, if you care about voter suppression, if you care about living wage, if you care about Medicaid expansion, if you care about non-discrimination laws and uh, various other things, that you have to understand that all of these fights are, are related they are joined. You you bring maps to your to the conversation where you overlay states without living wage legislation, lack of Medicaid expansion, women in poverty, lacking LGBTQ non-discrimination laws, poverty rates, voter suppression laws. And when you lay those maps, all those maps on top of each other, they have a lot in common in terms of the states where all of those things are true. And we're, and we're starting to get a lot of people in the Poor People's Campaign National Call for More Revival to understand that and cross these uh, 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 these lines that, as Dr. King said, are always uh, built, these walls that are built, these divisions that are created by the what he called the bourbon class and the aristocracy. Whenever there's the possibility for black poor people and white poor people and low-income people to come together, and create fundamental change in the political calculus of this nation. You're exactly right, uh, Jonathan. We, we, we've been in Appalachia, we've been in the Delta, we've been in upstate New York, and when poor communities are all white, we've been down uh, in Alabama, had black and white people and brown people together. We've been out in Arizona and had um, the Apache Nation uh, and, 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 and white brothers and sisters and black who are, who are, who, who found out that a coal co- company that wants to drill on Apache land, uh, or reservations are actually going to poison the aquifers that are going to run downstream and infect white people as well. And at first they didn't realize that. Now they realize that we've, we've been in rooms and we've said, if you, if you do this kind of deep dive work, we actually see both the power we actually see not only what they're doing, but the potential power to gather people together and fight back. That's why on June 20 of 2020, we have going to have the largest, biggest online mass poor people's assembly moral march on Washington digitally. And I'll talk to you a little bit more about that. But 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 the but the overlay, what we did, we said, wait a minute, what's really going on here? Why why isn't any politicians are any really addressing the 140 million poor and low wealth people. So as I said, we first broke the number down, and we had to show people from a percentage perspective, 61 percent of African Americans. From a raw number perspective, 66 40, 40 million more poor white people. Then we looked at some data, John, that a lot of people aren't looking at with even election of Trump. He 
people $50,000 and below did not vote in the majority for Trump. But we also looked at the 100 million people who sat home, and we saw that 100 million people sat home. A lot of the 100 million people who sat home were poor and low-income people. Then we looked in every state. We have a study doing that, looking at the margin of votes, the margin of victory for, say, McConnell, the margin of victory for, say, John Tillis in North Carolina, the margin of victory for Trump, even in the South. And we saw that the number of poor and low-wealth people who didn't even vote far outweighed far outweigh the, uh, the, uh, or outnumbered the margin of victory. So the what's going on here? Then we said, we would go in rooms and we would say, did you know that the same politicians that vote for, for voter suppression laws and then get elected because of voter suppression laws, because they, they, they dampen the ability of people to participate in, in, in civic engagement, when you look at their voting records, they, they all vote against uh, health care, the very thing we need right now. They all vote against living wages, the very thing essential workers need right now. They all vote against paid sick leave. They all vote against unemployment. They all vote against uh, curtailing the ability of corporations to poison our water and our, and our land. And when you look at all of that legislation and then you add up the numbers, you find out in raw numbers they hurt more white people than black in percentage, they hurt more black and brown people than white. And if you get people in a room and they can see that, folk actually say, we're being played. We're literally being played against one another. And in this pandemic right now, we're people are saying, oh, we really have to fight back. Now, we had a, a meeting, John, a few weeks ago, a mass meeting. We had white farmers talking about how this co poor farmers, this COVID-19 is destroying them, on the line with black urban folk from Arkansas, on the line with white people uh, being affected in homeless uh, uh, camps in Washington, on the line with uh, Latino folk from uh, Missouri, on the line with some uh, uh, black people from uh, 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 another group from Arkansas, all testifying about how because of poverty and because of all of these inequities, they are being devastated. They were devastated before the pandemic, devastated afterwards. And in a few weeks, we're doing a similar one. We believe this is the thing we have to do to build the kind of uh, uh, transformative movement that can fight back against what we're seeing now. And this pandemic is a moment that's exposing it even the more. Talk more about this this digital march on Washington that you're doing. I think you said in June June twentieth. June twentieth, twenty twenty. Yes, we we've been announcing it. You know, before all of this, we were doing a We Must Do More tour. We were visiting twenty six states, saying that poor and low wealth people, uh, moral advocates, and religious leaders, we needed to do more, mobilizing, organizing, registering, educating people for the movement who vote. And then last year, we announced at our Congress that we needed a mass meeting in Washington that would put a face on poverty, that would expose, uh, other Jonathan, how these, these, these five interlocking injustices, including the false moral narratives of religious nationalism, uh, uh, we, and, and the war economy and ecological devastation and poverty and systemic racism. And we needed to put a face on it right in front of the entire nation. So we were planning to be in Washington, D.C. on the 20th with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. We have 
100 organizations who've joined us, 16 denominational groups, 43 state coordinating committees made up of black, white, Latino, uh, uh, First Nation people, uh, Asian, all over the country. Then the pandemic hits, and Washington, D.C. says, early on, we're not allowing any gatherings. We went to our people, and they said, but we have to gather because we're going to be hurt the most in this pandemic, and America can't solve this issue unless she closes these fissures. And then they passed the third bill, Jonathan, and that bill left out millions of people, the so-called rescue bill. It let, it didn't give people automatic health care. So we're going to give you free testing, but we're not going to give you health care. That, that's, no, that's not good enough. They, so we said people were essential workers, but they didn't get living wages. They didn't get automatic paid leave. They didn't get long-term unemployment. Uh, we, they said, we're not even going to give testing to 11 million undocumented workers. They said, we're going to do a little something for homeless people, 500,000 people, but there are millions of people who are homeless or on the verge of homelessness. They said, we're going to forgive your rent for three months, but then in the fourth month, you're going to have to pay the three months and the fourth month. We said, that's, that's, that's not going to help poor and low-income people. They said, we're not going to guarantee that you can't shut utilities off and shut uh, 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 water off. And so we looked at those rescue bills and how they found $2.5 trillion in less than two weeks for corporations, but they could not do these fundamental things to close the fissures among poor and low-income people. More of our people said, we can't, we have to still march. We have to still gather. And so that we said, well, we will do it digitally. We will use every tool humankind has to go mobile. And people have just said yes. And so now we are hooking up with all kinds of groups. Uh, we put together a moral response to poverty in the midst of pandemic. MoveOn.org helped us push it out. We had a had a, a, a broadcast with them, uh, Liz Steele, Harris, and myself. A quarter million people showed up, Jonathan. A quarter of a million people online. A quarter of a million. And we only announced it like four days in advance. And so... You know, we have nearly, you know, thousands upon thousands of people who signed this agenda. We just had a briefing with select members of Congress and religious leaders just this past week, showing them the real data, how we got here, what's going on, why we can't fix this unless we do right by poor and low-income people. Uh, and so we're gathering uh, using every tool in social media. And what America's going to see is herself. America's going to see white farmers standing with fight for 15 workers. America's going to see Callie Greer, who lost her daughter before the pandemic, because of, uh, who's African-American, who's out, who, who, who lives in Alabama, and they refuse to expand health care, standing with Amy Joe, who's a white teacher from West Virginia and a mother who work, makes poverty wages as a teacher. She's low income. They're going to see a coming together of people and religions and, and advocates like we've never seen before, who, are, who, who in the midst of this pandemic are saying this, Jonathan. This is a question we're raising now. If you knew you only had 48 hours of breath left, because a lot of people in this pandemic, if they find out they have it, they, some of them have only had 48 hours of breath left, and then they're out of here. And so our folks are saying, if you knew you only had 48 hours of breath left, what kind of world would you use your last breath to fight for? 
What kind of love would you fight for? What kind of policies would you fight for? What kind of justice would you fight for? What kind of mercy would you fight for? And then they're saying, it's time for us to do that. If we're going to honor all of these people that are needlessly dying because of government policies, because they were poor, not because the virus was so powerful, but because they, we, we made all of these deliberate, mis, deliberate wrong steps, we didn't close these fissures, then those of us who are yet breathing, as long as we are breathing, have a moral obligation to fight for a better world, a better society in their memory. And, not, and, and that means protesting. It means going to the polls. It means challenging policy. It means using every bit of the breath we have to breathe a new understanding into the life of this democracy. Reverend Barber, let me end with, with this question. And since you are a, a, a man, a man of the cloth and a man of faith, um, uh, I'm curious. You cur always do that to me, John. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, every, obviously, I hear everything you're saying. I agree with what you're saying. One of the things I think is missing in all this is a leader, is a president of the United States for whom that is a goal. And so I would love for you to talk about, from your perspective, the impact of having a president of the United States who on a daily basis shows a complete lack of empathy for the nation he leads. You know, I am going to talk about this from the perspective of being uh, a clergy person. In fact, everything else I was talking about, you know, because this is from that perspective. Uh, John, you know, two, there are 2,000 scriptures in the Bible, Old New Testament, uh, Hebrew Bible, Christian New Testament. And, and you can find compliments to this in the Quran and most other faiths. 2,000 scriptures in the Bible that speak to the fact that the greatest, second greatest sin is mistreatment of the poor. And the least of these, the women and the children and the immigrant and the sick. However, the number one sin in the Bible is idolatry. Idolatry. And idolatry is most often a sin uh, um, that leaders engaging. And idolatry in the Bible, which always, when there's an idolatrous leader, a narcissistic leader, a self-worshipping leader, the second sin, mistreatment of the poor, the least of these, is always uh, uh, exacerbated. It's always greater whenever there's an idolatry in leadership. And throughout the scriptures, throughout the scriptures, uh, plagues reveal the idolatry and reveal the ugliness of society, particularly toward the least of these. Now, that's, that's just the fact when you look at scripture. As the Pope said, Pandemics, uh, and I love what he said, he said, are not necessarily the judgment of God, but 
pandemic's force is a way of, of the universe forcing us to make a judgment. A judgment about what kind of world we're going to have, what kind of leaders we're going to have, and are we going to truly care for one another, care for the least of these people? You know, because it's not as though Trump got into office uh, by just putting himself there. Uh, we talk a lot about him, but 60 some million people voted for him. And 100 million people stayed home. And yes, there was a lot of intentional voter suppression in the three states that he won by 80,000 votes. Um, uh, there are a lot that the, the, he has a lot of enablers, you know, and I think they're as much to blame or more to blame than Trump. And, 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 and I'm not taking away his first responsibility because he's mean, he's narcissistic. Every every day at six o'clock, we're seeing public idolatry, you know, uh, which is very dangerous, very dangerous. It is a terrible thing to have the kind of leadership Trump is, is, is showing, but also the enablement. Don't let McConnell, we have to really say the McConnell-Trump piece. We have to we have to say that about all of those who, 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 who lied and refused to allow this nation to deal all right with the impeachment issues. There are a lot of folk that are to blame for him having having the platform in the first place. Fox News giving him constantly over and over again. And then you're having the reporters there who are constantly uh, rebroadcasting and promoting uh, all of the lies, all of the distortions. But But in the midst of this pandemic, it is forcing all of us to choose because because we're having to deal every day with three things that force humanity to have to make some real choices. Mm-hmm. The fear of your own mortality. And that germ has, 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 has shown us that. The fear of your monetary resources. You don't know what you may or may not have tomorrow. And the fear of, of being able to have mutual relationships. All those things are on the line. And my prayer, my prayer is that even in Scripture, every time there was a pandemic and a narcissistic leader, even a leader just coming out of Easter that would be so ugly enough to crucify um, a, a person focused on love, on the other side of that, there was a resurrection. On the other side of that, there was the parting of a Red Sea. On the other side of that, there was something. And even in American history last, alongside ugliness, authoritarian, idolatry-like leaders, we've always had movements that would rise up. And it didn't always start with the political persons. It started many times among the very people who were being hurt, the very people who were being uh, compromised. They would find a way to come together, be community, Mm -hmm. and work toward the change of the nation. That is my prayer, Jonathan. That is what Many of us have decided, I've decided, if I only have 48 hours of breath left, that's what I'm going to give my attention to and working with people who feel likewise. We don't have to accept this. We don't have to accept this bullying of this president. The reporters in the room, I'm going to say it on your podcast, you don't have to take that. Some of the reporters are to stand together one day in unity and say, are you crazy, Ms. President? Don't say that again to another one of our people. I know reporters are not supposed to be the issue, but there comes a time when you have to plant your feet 
in nonviolent ways and stand up and call some things out. And I'm hoping that all of us, you've been doing it, Jonathan, and I hope that all of us across the board will say, we will not turn over our country or our lives or our protection to one individual and his enablers. We are better than that. Reverend William Barber, president of Repairs of the Breach and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Sir, thank you very much for coming back to the podcast. God bless you. Take care. Thank you to all your listeners. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.